This is Tom Lee, the Editor-in-Chief of NEGM Catalyst, and we're talking today uh, with Michael Chirnu, who is the Leonard Schaefer Professor of Healthcare Policy uh, at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he is an economist who's, who I think knows as much as anyone about how money flows in healthcare and what happens with different payment models. There is no perfect way for money to change hands, and Mike, in his research and his experience, uh, in a variety of roles, working at MedPAC, uh, and that, that is the, the Medicare uh, Payment Advisory Commission. Uh, he has both academic and real-world experience with the pluses and minuses of different payment models. And therefore, when we started the journal for NEJM Catalyst, uh, in the very first issue, uh, we asked my to write an article with his young colleague, Jermaine Heath, uh, that would address the question of how should money flow in healthcare. Uh, the article's title was How Different Payment Models Support or Undermine a Sustainable Healthcare System, Rating the Underlying Incentives and Building a Better Model. That was in January 2020. Uh, it was written in 2019, and the world is a little different since then. Um, COVID has changed everything in healthcare, and I wanted to talk with Mike today about how some of the points in his article might have been modified or changed in any way by COVID, and what stayed the same. So, Mike, you know, you were, let's start with fee-for-service. You, you were pretty tough on fee-for-service versus population-based uh, payment. Um, after several months of COVID disruption, what's your feeling now? And, and perhaps uh, more important, how do you think providers and payers are feeling about fee-for-service versus population management? So, Tom, first, it is terrific to talk to you. And everything I say is going to reflect my own personal views, not those of MedPAC. But I will uh, go into my thoughts on these topics. With regards to your specific question about uh, COVID and fee-for-service, it has certainly not been fee-for-service's most moment. Um, we have seen an enormous drop in volume, which has put all types of providers under great fiscal pressure. And I think many of them realize now that even under a fee-for-service system, they face a lot of financial when something like COVID happens. We have a big concern about how often things like COVID will happen in the future, but uh, fee-for-service has not. Um, the other model has done better, but the important thing to remember is the details matter. One healthcare executive who's a very thoughtful guy um, told me that COVID has led to an opinion that fee-for-service actually enormous down risk exposure when outside events lead to drops in utilization with almost no, since everyone's working as hard as it can already work to produce visits and tests and procedures. And his organization right now is talking about having a more balanced risk portfolio with more population-based risk contracts. Now, I, I my guess is that you think that that's a good reaction. I mean, one of my concerns is that as they actually start digging out of their financial hole, they're just going to try to crank up volume based upon fee-for-service. 
but your thoughts on this comment and whether providers will be able to develop uh, a different approach to risk? Yeah, so first of all, it's a very rational comment, certainly in hindsight. Um, I personally don't like thinking of the payment mix as a portfolio problem um, because I see a whole range of broader fee-for-service payment writ large. Um, of course, I see a lot of problems with population-based payment, that matter, episode-based payment as well. But I think given what happened, I think delivery systems are understanding that they are facing this service risk and that, in fact, moving to population-based payment models will give them both a little more ability and, I would argue, a little more flexibility and a little more incentives to maintain and build an efficient healthcare system when we uh, move past and hopefully soon move past the COVID pandemic. Now, you know, I actually I chair the board of a health plan, Geisinger Health Plan, and I have to admit that it only uh, just uh, popped up on my radar screen that in a year when there's been a lot less healthcare utilization, uh, which was good financially with health and bad financially for the providers uh, uh, under fee-for-service, that risk adjustment is going to be completely distorted um, and risk adjustment scores are used to influence next year's budgets for commercial risk contracts and uh, Medicare Advantage. Um, any insights into how big a problem this is and what might be done about it? Yeah, so um, quick answer is it is a big problem. The part that I'd like to highlight is we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in the article criticizing aspects of fee-for-service. Um, the issue you raise uh, points out uh, concern with broader payment models like population-based payment models, and as you mentioned, even in Medicare Advantage, which is essentially a type of population-based payment model where you have to deal with issues like risk adjustment. And while these models might be able to smooth some of the impact of volume declines, you do have to figure out how to deal with the risk adjustment issues, you have to figure out how to deal with the attribution issues, you have to figure out how to deal with the quality measurement issues. There are a number of proposals on the table for how that might be done. I think in the case of Geisinger, um, when they're dealing with any of their population-based payment models when they're paying out to providers, they will deal with it one way and they can be flexible. CMS will have to think about how to deal with this across the board in all of their programs, and I know they are doing a lot of that. Some of that will depend on how quickly volume comes back and the extent to which they will try and use data from, for example, 2019 before the pandemic, the extent to which they will try and make ex post adjustments afterwards. All those things, I think, will be on the table. Um, the important thing is that when we design a payment model, it's very hard to design one that will work perfectly when we have a uh, event like COVID. So in addition to the payment model, the way that it's written, you are always going to need some amount of ability to adjust. And I think the biggest problem in the fee-for-service system was not simply it was fee-for-service, it's that we hadn't really built the infrastructure to figure out how we were going to do things like allocate government support. Um, well, and I think yeah. going forward, we'll have a better plan. Uh, well, let's turn to uh, what a better plan might be. And uh, for uh, the cognoscenti who really think about uh, payment models, 
uh, what, uh, what the economists and health policy people that I spoke with really were interested in uh, about in your article was not just the grading system for the stress pluses and minuses of uh, the you know fee for service versus episode payment versus population based contracts but the last section where uh, you, you you entitled it designing a better population based payment model provider premium support uh, that is what got tremendous attention among the uh, the cognoscenti that I spoke with. So uh, for those who haven't encountered the term before or, or who might not have read your article, could you give a quick explanation of PPS and and how you think it might, ha- might be able or unable to respond to the kind of turmoil that we've had this year? Sure. So provider premium support is basically a different way of setting the benchmarks in population-based payment models. The benchmarks are the crucial targets that organizations need to hit to define savings or losses. And the idea behind provider premium support is you essentially set them administratively like with a growth rate, the way we set almost every other price in the Medicare system. And the advantage of that, there, there are several advantages to versions like that. One of them is, of course, in a situation like COVID, um, you don't have a huge drop-off in fee-for-service uh, spending driving down benchmarks. You get a, a little bit more stability. Of course, that's if you're the organization that's employing the primary care provider, you get that level of stability. Um, it allows you to think a little bit more about the overall spending trajectory. It gets rid of some of the budgetary concerns that we have, and COVID's going to create huge budgetary concerns for the Medicare program or for the nation as a whole. It avoids other problems. Uh, one of the biggest ones, for example, in existing ACO programs, I call the ratchet effect, which is if you perform well, they then lower your benchmark going forward. So you basically pay a price for past successes. Provide, provider premium support uh, solves that problem, and in some ways it's analogous to what we normally think of premium support when people are buying, say, insurance. The difference is the risk is borne by the providers, not by the beneficiaries. The last thing I'll say about this, Tom, um, which matters, is that there's a number of other issues that COVID has brought up. A good example would be telemedicine, where we're worried that if we allow uh, uh, broad access, there'll be a dramatic increase in use uh, in the fee-for-service system. All types of population-based payment models can help with that, but things like provider premium support can perhaps provide the most robust benchmark setting system to get around that problem and allow the most flexibility for things like telemedicine or hospital or home or a number of other innovations. Uh, you know, that is a great example of an issue that might be better addressed with um, uh, a more refined payment model. I mean, as as uh, things settle out, uh, I, I know that there are, you know, three basic questions about telemedicine. It could end up being just more care. And because I, I know many institutions for whom in-person care has gone back to normal, uh, we could just end up with what we were doing before plus telemedicine. It might be better care, that, that more care might lead to better control of risk factors. But then it might be more efficient care too. It, it could replace think, uh, care that's higher cost. Um, do you have a sense of how incentives might drive the third, uh, which is more efficient care that's also good? 
Yeah, so first of all, I agree 100% with your characterization, and therein lies the problem. Part of the thing that I think listeners need to be aware of is that many folks that think about designing the incentives worry much more about the actions of the least well-motivated uh, providers in the world as opposed to what the best providers in the world will do. And the concern is that if you allow access very, very broadly to services like telemedicine, the there will be opening an opportunity for abuse of the system overuse without getting the comparable quality that you need. The advantage of moving to a different payment model, like a population-based payment model, you could think about it in an episode-based payment model, is that the system doesn't have to put in place all of the various fences that people are talking about around telemedicine, the originating provider, what type of services are getting paid, what the, a whole bunch of other things. You don't have to put as much attention to that, and you can allow providers to be flexible to use it when they want to use it, when they think they can get value, and the payer, Medicare, the commercial payers, are not at as much financial risk. And I think the problem with all of these innovations that are great for a large number of people but can be overused and in some cases dramatically overused is that the fee-for-service system forces a bunch of administrative fences, um, caps, limits, certifications, administrative burdens to justify use that will drive everybody crazy and you can get around some of that administrative complexity if you just give the providers the flexibility to use it when they want to use it without having to worry as much that there will be some providers that will uh, overuse the service. Have you had a response from any payers or with your colleagues in government uh, uh, as you've discussed provider premium support? So, uh, frankly, the article came out at the beginning of January. We had had some very, I would say, preliminary discussions with people just to try and understand the idea about what this would mean for how you could change, say, the existing ACO program or what you might do to move to different benchmark typesetting systems. And then COVID hit. And COVID sucked all the energy away from reform. And in fact, as a broader point, um, there's a lot of challenges that we face and we're going to face uh, for the next year at least about how to deal with fee-for-service payment, about how to change uh, population-based payment models. But my general view is we shouldn't design the payment model to work in an era of COVID. We should design the payment model that works in hopefully much more normal times and we should spend a lot of attention to figure out if we have another COVID-like pandemic how do we adjust the payment model? What do we do differently? That can be done in fee-for-service. That can be done in existing ACO models. That can be done in a provider premium support benchmarking type system. It can be done for Medicare Advantage. So I think we will have a discussion about alternative payment models going forward, both because I believe the evidence shows they have had some success at lowering spending and improving quality, not as much as many would like, and because there's a continuing debate about how to design them better. I think provider premium support and the ideas behind it that sever some of the ties between the system and the fee-for-service part of the world um, should be on the table, and we'll see how that plays out, understanding that no payment model is perfect, it, the, the right payment model will vary for different provider types, and that every payment model has some blend of a lot of these ideas. Even provider premium support uh, operates with an underlying fee-for-service chatting, for example. So we need to think about how to blend these ideas, how to blend these incentives, and how to make them robust, how to react, 
should we have a COVID pandemic? Or, I mean, another good example would be how we would react in any of these models to having a COVID vaccine or a more expensive COVID treatment. How do you adjust the payment rates and how do you allow flexibility for that to work? Those issues are going to plague any payment model. We're going to need some level of flexibility. I just happen to believe that a broader payment model, like population-based payment model, gives the delivery system, the providers, the most flexibility to provide efficient care at a, uh, at a price that can be both afforded by the payers and um, uh, sufficiently profitable or sufficiently uh, um, valuable to the providers. Um, and I think that's going to be hard to do in a fee-for-service system that we have facing all the budget pressures. Well, I think that uh, some of the key words you used were blending and flexibility. Uh, we're going to need both because certainly uh, I think what we've learned in 2020 is that having a model that uh, rewards uh, one party and punishes another, uh, depending on whether or not there's a pandemic going on, uh, that doesn't work very well. Uh, we need something that is going to be adaptable and flexible uh, because we are going to be having turmoil. Uh, it, uh, hopefully it won't be like COVID every year, uh, but we are going to have fl big fluctuations probably. And a flexible model, as you describe, I think it's going to be, is going to become more and more relevant and it should get more attention as we uh, get past the immediate crises of COVID and start to deal with the long term. Can I add one other point, Tom? Sure. I want to add one last point. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, going forward, the healthcare system is going to have to become more efficient. What these alternative payment models do is they allow the provider system to capture the financial uh, gains associated with that efficiency in a way that I think is going to be particularly important over the next five to ten years. Uh, yes, yeah, that probably is the m most simple and powerful bottom line. Uh, but the subsequent complex bottom lines, which will have to be developed, uh, I know you're going to be completely in the mix. And uh, we're grateful that you started uh, one discussion in NEGM Catalyst, and we're hoping to check in with you on a regular basis. So thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, Tom. I really enjoyed talking with you.